Hey, listener, Dipanjana here. Before you jump into this episode, please know there is a mention of violence against women around the 18-minute mark. Your discretion is advised, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. Hello and welcome to The Lit Pickers, where I am in the studio with my friend Dipanjana, who is in the studio with her friend Supriya. And we are delighted to be with you, dear listener, to talk about the really torrential rains outside our studio. I'm basically right now a wet sack. But to be fair, sometimes that is my temperament anyway. So right now my person and my temperament are in match. <laughs> I am a shivering cat. The walk to the studio from my house was a torrid one. And it got me thinking about just, it's not easy to get a handle on how to think about the present, much less the future. It's hard enough to do it in journalism, which is popularly or unpopularly called the first draft of history. Nice excuse. <laughs> but it's even harder to do it in novels. But we're in the studio today to talk about authors who have risen to that challenge in India and have written books that are set in very, very recent history. Um when we're talking about Indian literature, is that classically, or traditionally rather, we've always been told that India is many Indias. And it's true. We are a very diverse group of people coming together to make one nation. This idea of one nation doesn't turn a blind eye to the fact that there are very many different realities that make up this one country. What I found quite interesting when I was reading of late a bunch of books that are set in contemporary India is the sameness of it, actually. The many Indias has turned into one India that is full of turmoil, that is full of the same kind of difficulties and divergences and vectors of toxicity. The sameness is what is coming through rather than the many Indianess that was sort of, you know, emphasized in the past. Mm. Of course, many Indians really fell into a cliche, right, of poor India and rich India. That was essentially what we were getting. But now there's a certain kind of conflating that happens. And the conflating has a lot to do with the fact that we're seeing events unfold around us, which we are really grappling to make sense of. And right, and we have no outside help, given that the things that should help us make sense of it, like the media, journalism, for example, are increasingly centralized and narrowed down to giving us one perspective when we need more than one pretty far urgently. Far more. And yeah. it also creates a situation where, you know, the burden of history in many ways falls upon fiction. Now, I was thinking of that. you know, yeah. there was an interview I was hearing of Colson Whitehead, who's a wonderful American writer, and he's won the Pulitzer twice. He's known for writing very sort of politically charged fiction. Mm -hmm. And he said that, look, I don't actually think a fiction writer has any responsibility in that sense towards writing any one kind of fiction or even being reflective of the times that they're in, in their work. I don't think a fiction writer has any responsibility other than telling a good story. That's all. How you tell that good story is totally up to you. 
I like doing something that has a sort of, you know, undercurrent of politics and contemporary references to it. But I'm not saying that that's the only thing to do. And that was a pretty strong reminder. I think increasingly because we're not able to rely upon even a history textbook to tell us our history anymore, Mm -hmm. the burden of history now falls on fiction. We expect our artists, not just writers, we want cinema, we want literature to speak to the world around us. And the thing is, one, they're not really obliged to, but more importantly, it's a very difficult thing to do because what you have around you is chaos. Making sense of chaos immediately without the benefit of hindsight, it's a really difficult thing to do. Yeah, pretty daunting and I can't imagine very pleasant. But what I would like to do is to interview you about some of these books that you read. Okay, so there are three books that I want to talk about, Mm -hmm. right? And I think you've read one and a half of them or one of them? I've dipped in and out. Okay, cool. The three books that I want us to chat about, one is Quarter Life by Devika Dege. All three are fiction, by the way. The other is Siddharth Deb's The Light at the End of the World. Mm. Great journalist. Siddharth Deb is a great journalist. If you haven't read The Beautiful and the Damned, right. you absolutely Not the F. Should. Scott Fitzgerald book, <laughs> but, the, but the book of journalism Siddharth Deb wrote yeah. 10 or 12 years ago that took its name from the Fitzgerald books. Superb example of creative journalistic writing. So he's written a novel called The Light at the End of the World. Mm. And finally, a novel that is... For market purposes, um, categorized as a YA novel, Shabna Minwala Zen. If you're just joining us from Neptune, YA is young adult fiction. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And it is young adult because its protagonists are young adults. But I really wish I could give this book to pretty much everybody. Mm. Because the thing is that with literary fiction, even if it is done well, often it's not easy to read. It's quite demanding of the reader. Mm. Why fiction, on the other hand, and I don't know how they do it, how people like Shabna Minwala, who is amazing as a writer, is able to do this. They take these really dense, complicated ideas and they make it accessible. They place it in a story in a way, they unfold it through story in a way that it doesn't feel overwhelming, Mm. even though they're not actually simplifying anything. It's It's a a real gift gift. to be able to write for audiences who are maybe too young or aren't in the habit Mm. to have made reading a practice, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good goal. So Quarter Life. Right. So this is a book that she spent seven years writing. and made a debut that her publishers are touting as like the book of the year. Yeah. I'm always happy when any sort of debutante author is aggressively pushed by a publisher. Gets their flowers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's so rare, right? Mm. And it's so hard to do as well. Yeah, if you're not a celebrity to start with, right? Exactly. It's very hard to get that kind of backing. And this is not an easy book to push, right? It's also got, by the way, one of the most stunning covers that I've seen in Indian fiction in a long time. I don't want to describe it because you should just feel the visual impact of that cover. So please just, you know, look up Quarter Life and Devika Rege. Go to a bookstore and see it if you can. Mm. It's a really beautiful and impactful cover. Do you want to give a basic introduction to Quarter Life? Quarter Life, which came out in the summer of 2023, in case you're listening to this in 2053, is a novel set in the years immediately after 2014 in an India that is recognizably, well, at least mine in the Panjana's. A new government has just been 
elected to power in a historic poll. People are flooding back to the country after years having worked or studied abroad, hoping that their dreams will flourish in this India as opposed to the old India. Many kinds of young men in particular are experiencing political awakenings that they did not think mattered before. And many other kinds of people are finding that their positions in society and their relationship to India and to the Indian state are getting more and more complicated. Quarter Life takes us through a couple of years in this boiling soup pot of incidents. And it does so through very rapid shifts in points of view between about a dozen characters, maybe yeah, fewer. Yeah, but centrally, you have Narain, who's an America-returned banker, somebody in the finance world, basically. Uh, you he might be a consultant. Yeah. Is there a difference? He's rich. <laughs> He's rich. <laughs> and he has an American accent. He wears a tie And he work. was dumped by a white woman, heartbreak hashtag. There's Amanda, who is full of liberal guilt and, you know, from a very privileged American background who's mm. come to India to work with an NGO while she's trying to find herself. There is Kedar, who is a journalist, a very idealistic journalist and a cousin of Naren's, Naren's younger brother, Rohit, who is a film producer and also trying to find himself and figure out what he's going to do in this new India of possibilities and uncertainties and all of that. And... Finally, I would say very key to the novel is this uh, young man called Omkar, who is a filmmaker and also bears the weight of representing a very vast demographic of non-privileged India through his character. Hmm. Relatively non-privileged India, I would say. So a lot of the novel proceeds in the telling of one of these characters or the other. While there are happenings that move time forward in the novel, the feat, I think, that Devika Rege achieves is really just to like shift like a skilled musician from voice to voice to try and sweep you through these years in history that she's writing about. I think her experiments with POV shifting are one of the things that really struck me as like a real literary success in the novel. It's harder than it looks. Oh, 100%. She establishes very distinct voices for each of her characters. And she does it without taking recourse in gimmicks like, you know, putting in Hindi words or Marathi words or things like that. That's yeah, not there's it. no accent writing in this. Yeah. And I can name other books set in, <laughs> in, in near history, which I'm not going to name today, that do actually do that, where you have working class characters or characters who are not Anglophone, whose point of view is written in like in like that only kind of yeah English. caricaturized yeah. through the English Correct. she doesn't do that yeah. she doesn't fall prey but it, to yeah that. and I wonder if it actually does take seven years for people to get that right I'm it's, glad that it took that much time if uh, yeah I mean I'm sure it was extremely hard to persevere for seven years with a story that is you know birthing itself in this way yeah but she's done such a great job of crafting these separate voices if you are of a certain age, meaning like Supriya and me, have seen these characters around you, this book could easily have been a story of cliches. It really could have been because these are very stereotypical characters. 
to Devika Rege's credit, they never feel like stereotypes. Yeah, they feel familiar, but yes. not... They feel very familiar, but they don't feel flat. <laughs> That's right. You know? Yeah, I think it's also interesting, and I suppose this is where a novelist's art comes in, that she resists the urge to deliver political messages, which is not to say the book isn't political. Oh, the book All is writing is political, political, in case you haven't heard. No, but I mean, uh, it's not the, even disguised in its... Uh, political nature. There are many reasons that I would applaud her for persisting with this and her publishers for pushing this book. One of them is certainly that, you know, she's a debutante author, etc. Mm -hmm. But also, she has barely disguised contemporary India's politics. She's not used the names of actual political parties or actual banks or things like that. But you will be able to identify without a hitch who she's talking about, what she's talking about. Yeah. So it's very well observed. Which guy in your gated community she has her eye on <laughs> and that she sliced very gently yeah. with her words. It's very well observed, but it's also very brave. It's an extremely brave and ambitious thing to do to take the present and map it into fiction. Hmm. She does this beautifully and full props to her. However, because I'm a difficult critic and generally a curmudgeon, I did not love the book ultimately because it, in its final chapter, slipped into a self-indulgence that just irritated the crap out of me because <laughs> I'd loved it so much in its initial chapters. Of course, we can nitpick about certain things, but essentially what was really working for Quarter Life was the care with which she was building and layering these characters to be real, right? Like the Omkar character, you feel the meticulousness with which the writer has put in every little detail to signify certain political attitudes about being underprivileged through the lens of caste, underprivileged in terms of language, about feeling privileged, though, in terms of political affiliations, feeling a sense of empowerment from certain political movements. Like She's done a really good and carefully plotted out set of characters in her book, all of which ultimately culminates in this rather long conclusion of absolute self-intelligent lyricism. And I was so frustrated by that. And this is not on her, by the way. This is on whoever was editing that book. <laughs> Why on earth would you not be in service of a good book and tell the author, please take this and put this up on your blog? <laughs> I think, I don't think anyone writes blogs anymore. I think ultimately there is something telling about how the characters who slip out of view in Quarter Life do slip out of view and which characters slip out of view. I will let the reader discover that for themselves. I don't want to go into spoilers beyond a point. I can see why the writer was passionate about the kind of epilogue she ended up developing. And I can also see why a publisher might find its recourse to a kind of writing that is really very, very trendy in US publishing right now, or at least it was in the 2010s, might be a good choice. I'm not mad about it. I think, you know, sometimes you need to make flying leaps into failed experiments or experiments that might succeed for a vast majority of readers, which we have to acknowledge that they might. But we will take Dipanjana's pronouncement on the epilogue as the view of this podcast <laughs> in but, general. But I mean, also, there's a lot that she gets right. And I spoke about the Omkar character. The other part that I would sort of, you know, want to 
tell you about if you're intending to pick up this book is that she also has an extended description of the Ganesh Visarjan, which is one of the best that I've read in years. It really does provide a kind of crescendo to the book that is quite unlike what I've read in a novel in a long time. And I'd like to appreciate that too. But something that is missing from the mood of Quarter Life is uh, contempt, anger, disgust, all of which is really common to the kind of circles that English publishing, writing and podcasting in this country have given into in the last few years when talking about the national scene. Mm. But there's more than a streak of that running through Siddharth Deb's novel, isn't there? I think it's all of that. Like, that is what it is. Like, right. the light at the end of the world is rage. Mm. It is all about rage. Right. And there is place for that in literature. I mean, angry novels. Of course. Who doesn't love them? Again, A lot of people don't. <laughs> <laughs> Especially those who are um, the target of the anger, I suppose. Again, what an incredibly brave novel. This is one that disguises even less than Quarter Life does. Mm-hmm. It specifically mentions certain political parties. Hmm. Which we are not mentioning on this podcast. We are not because we are (laughs) elegant and discreet. You know, I can't remember who it was, but somebody described it like a miniature version of the Indian Garden of uh, Good and Evil. Mm. And that's a pretty good description, I think. Except, okay, let me approach this slightly differently. The Light at the End of the World is a novel set in an indeterminate time, partially. It's very relatable to the present, but it feels a little bit in the future. We start off with a character called Bibi, who's a journalist turned content writer. Mm. She is living in Delhi, but she's from the Northeast. We would discover a little bit later into the novel that she and her mother, that's her surviving family, they are not considered citizens of India because they don't have the documents to get on the National Register of Citizens. To mention things like the NRC, very brave. To create your protagonist as somebody who lives in this uncertainty, fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of a lot of people in the Indian novel writing class, of social class, I mean, who do actually look at something like the NRC and think, oh, that's a subject for my And are able to do it in a way that doesn't feel like just a device, you know. Mm. Siddharth Deb's journalism really powers his characterizations, particularly the BB character. Mm. There's one description of a protest that gets sort of uh, co-opted. There's an attempt to co-opt it and then there are tear gas shells that are thrown at the protesters. Scenes that are unfortunately very familiar to those of us who saw the way student protests have been dealt with in this country in recent years. The protests against the CAA, which is part of the subject in Zen as well, Shabna Meenwala's book, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, we've seen it when there were the you know outburst of civilian protests after the Delhi rape, the most horrific one that went around as a viral trend, mm-hmm. for the want of a better phrase. Sorry, are we talking about 2012? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, Just to clarify. It, because that's where we're at. There that's are like multiple uh, yeah. incidents that we can point to. But yeah, the point is that we've seen a lot of these incidents, but Siddharth Deb brings in his journalistic perspective to put this into fiction. It's beautifully done, horrifically done, perhaps in certain senses, because it inspires in you just a kind of 
a feeling of wretchedness. Mm. There's a helplessness of a witness. And that's what you feel when you're reading The Light at the End of the World. Right. It's very powerful when it works. Now, unfortunately, it feels a little monotonous after a bit, mm-hmm. one. Also, the lyricism of his descriptions are powered by anger. It's just fury coming out as poetry. But everyone's furious. Mm. So essentially, there's Bibi's section. Then we jump without much explanation to 1984 Bhopal, just before the Bhopal gas tragedy. Then we jump to 1857 Kolkata, Calcutta at that point of time. Um, For those of you who didn't grow up in an Indian classroom, 1857 is the date of what we commonly call the first Indian War of Independence, but that the British at the time called the first Sepoy Mutiny. Indeed. Major pushback against growing British control of India. So these are all incidents and histories that act as a backdrop to what we're seeing in the book. And in the final section, we sort of come back to Bibi. The rage is everywhere, and it's one note. When it does shift, when it feels like a different character, it feels fake. It's only the rage that feels authentic in this book. There's also a problem of surrealism. Okay. Right? Because I think what's happening at the heart of the light at the end of the world is Siddharth Dev saying that this stuff that's happening in reality is just too insane to be contained in realism. You need the fantastical, you need the phantasmagorical to really articulate this properly. Mm -hmm. So he does bring in a lot of surrealism. He brings in sort of these fantastical elements and stuff. The net result, though, is that it turns reality into something just weird and unreal. To be fair. (laughs) It's not unreal, though. It's weird, but it's not unreal. Mm. And to turn it into unreal sort of defeats the purpose that this book started off with in the first place. So am I to understand that you think that the value of this book as a literary work lies largely in the mood that it's able to kind of distill, you know, with the with the rage and the anger. Definitely, but I don't know if I can talk about the value of a literary work because it's so difficult to tell what will actually end up surviving, you know, eons and generations. That's true. But, but I also think that for all of us who are in the reading and writing business, the prevailing sense in India has been that if you are doing you're doing survival work mm. and you are doing work so that it will there will be a record for the future rather than what the mood was maybe you know even 10 years ago which was that you were writing to make a difference mm. Mm. yeah i mean i think the fact that journalism has failed makes life rather difficult for novelists like siddharth dev mm. because this is a novel that would not leave me feeling frustrated if i could say that well you know a reader can actually look up what happened and get Get news reports for context. Unfortunately, you can't. Right. You know, not only because so many news reports are biased, Mm. uh, which they are. And fake. And fake, which they are. are, But also because they're behind paywalls, because they're Uh. inaccessible, because they haven't been digitized. Like the levels of obstacles are so many right now. And we tend to forget that. Mm. And I think it's something that my generation particularly feels more viscerally than the younger ones, because we sort of grew up without having easy access. Then we were lucky enough to be there when the internet was truly quite open because it was very young and new. It's true. A thousand flowers bloomed. Yes, they did. You know, like, and you had suddenly 
everything felt accessible and was to a large extent. And from there, it's become more and more narrowed down. Mm. We've seen how those uh, shutter-like things come down on a dam so that the water gets blocked. That's what we've seen happen with the internet. For those who have been born in the 2000s, for those who have been born in the late 90s, you don't know how free it was before. So it's very difficult to explain to you that there was a completely different online world. <laughs> yeah, buddies, it's midnight in this garden of good and evil, and we're not so sure about the good <laughs> right but now. But anyway, so to bring it back to Siddharth Dev, this kind of strange echo slash not echo of events in the real world mm. versus the kind of the high concept fantasy stuff going on in the book. What I'm getting from what you're saying is that you feel like that didn't quite work. It didn't work for, for me. Yeah. Right. It didn't work for me quite as well. Like, for example, there's the idea of a monkey man that is very elaborately explored in, okay. across the book. Now, the monkey very man, as you'll remember, yeah. is 2006. Well, people said they saw a monkey man doing violent things in Delhi. Mm -hmm. If you've watched uh, Delhi 6, Rakesh Om Prakash uh, Mehra's uh, film, it looks at that and then sort of forgets about it along the way. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, it, this was something that we saw playing out and then disappearing. Something similar happens with this. So he looks at the monkey man almost like this character is an expression of this inchoate rage mm. in the world around them. But it just doesn't go anywhere. And then it slips into these surreal spaces, which undercut the realism that was making it powerful. So the rage suddenly then becomes directionless. Right. And I still think it's a very powerful book. I just wish it didn't feel like a fantasy by the end of it, because it's not. <laughs> you forget, because of the way it's written, that when we see the world around us as collapsing and being torn apart by awfulness, this is not a delusion. This is not a broken mind. This is not the perspective of a grief-struck, disillusioned person. This is actually happening. I think that's really great perspective on, more broadly, the challenges of what we're talking about, right? Which is writing about near history. I haven't read Siddharth Deb's novel. I will. You should, you've, you should. Because you've, you've inspired me to read it to try and figure out what I'll make of it myself. I think um, everyone should read it. Like, it is powerful. It's just that, it again, I'm one of right, those... Right, so you're cutting it down to taste. You're like, yeah, this stuff didn't work for, for me. For me, for me. But it doesn't necessarily mean but that... But that doesn't may mean not, you shouldn't read it. You right, should absolutely read it. I think something that struck me as you were talking was that while the inherent courage that it takes, the inherent ballsiness of looking at the last few years and saying... This is what my novel's going to be about. I'm going to write about the water that I'm swimming in or that my people are swimming in. Is also writing for a future that you haven't seen at all. Mm. All novels go into the world, I think, with the sense that how they're received today is not how they will be received 50 years from now. And so in some sense, perhaps uh, novels like this are also taking the bet on the future that the journalists that we know and the journalists that do, right? Which is to say, we're going to do this now. We don't know what it means today. But we're taking the bet that tomorrow when someone needs it, it's, it's going to be It's such an there. act of hope, right? It's uh, such yes. an act of hope to yeah. believe that this writing is something that will survive into the future, that will be seen and understood. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that will be understood in ways that we and perhaps even the writers can't understand uh, Always, it because, right now. Because any work of art is ultimately completed by the person who sees it. 
that is right. right. Yeah. Or reads it in the case of a book. And uh, listen, now I'm really interested and intrigued by the sound of Zen. So tell us about it. Yeah. So Zen is very interesting to me because it takes a lot of the rage that you have in Siddharth Dev's book, in Devika Rege's book, and like I was saying, puts it into the YA format, mm-hmm. right? And by format, I mean you have a teenaged protagonist, you have a hint of a love story, and you have a coming-of-age self-discovery narrative. These are kind of basic for YA fiction, mm-hmm. right? What Shabna Meenwala does with this is A, Write a love letter to Bombay. That is one of the loveliest that I have read in a long time. Mm, and this is not a city that lacks in love letters. No, it really does not. That's I, it's also set in South Bombay, a place that has been written many odes to. Mm, that's true. <laughs> but it's still quite, quite charming. Yeah. I mean, look, it's pretty great. Yeah. Not so amazing to walk around in after dark anymore, but... Not anymore, but still. <laughs> pretty, still yeah, kind that's of... That's okay. Kind South of, Bombay, uh, we have nothing against you. No, it's still ambient. It's still beautiful. And that's what it's sort of... And it's historic. It's historic in a way that newer neighborhoods like, for example, a Bandra Kurla complex just cannot aspire to be. But leaving that aside, Zen. Shabna Meenwala Zen has two protagonists centrally, yes? One is a young woman called Zen. The story is set in 2019. She's a teenager. She's apolitical. She lives in South Bombay. She's got her life pretty much sorted out. She doesn't want to trouble anybody. And then her best friend is like, you have to help me make posters because we are going to debate about CAA. My country is not going to have CAA being passed in it. That's how she sort of gets brought into kind of kicking and screaming into this political situation. Meanwhile, she's named after her great-grandmother, whose name was Zenab. Basically, there are two stories that are unfolding. One is from 1935, one is from 2019. Mm. Both of these stories have points of resonance. 1935, for those of you who know Indian history better than I do because you studied it in school. 1935 is when the Government of India Act is passed. Independence movement is at a pretty violent place at that point. It's getting to be violent, Um, There is a lot of swirl and churn in those years, which you see from the perspective of someone who's not allowed to be out in the way that Zen, for example, is able to be out on the streets. That's what I kind of loved about it. You know, because we keep thinking, especially now, if we cocoon ourselves enough, then the outside world won't come in. Zenob's story is a great reminder that no matter how cloistered you are, the outside world comes in because mm. you're in that world. There are two beautiful love stories coming out here. There's two very interesting times of history depicted. And she does this so well. She gives you conflicting points of view. She makes you pay attention to political standpoints that you want to dismiss outright. And she is not giving them time of day in the way, for example, Quarter Life does. Like Quarter Life has one character, and I won't take any names because I don't want it to be a spoiler. There's one character who is very much pushing a right-wing conservative point of view. And the book does not stand by his political ideology, but certainly does try to understand and provide a somewhat empathetic point of view to why he's gone on to that political ideology and stayed with it. Shabna, meanwhile, is not here to tell you that being conservative is okay. 
She does not think mm. it is. I guess that's one of the things that appeals to people about YA fiction, right? Which is that so often it is the mode in which YA fiction is written that you take a stand. Yeah. So the messaging is kind of clear and direct, even evangelical in a way that literary fiction often isn't. And also because of the age of these protagonists, it holds out the hope that you will see the light, that you can meet at a middle point that you are not so fixed in your ways as to become blinkered, mm. that you can open up. Yeah. You know, like that is the hope of YA fiction. The malleability, the magnanimity of youth is what makes these stories such a joy to read. Yeah. They feel life-affirming for this reason. I can't recommend Zen enough, quite honestly. Like, I wish I knew what would be the magic charm that I could say here to make you go and pick up that book. But it is an absolute joy. The only thing that I have against it, because there are these two timelines, they've tried to go with two different fonts. Zenab's story <laughs> is supposed to be a handwritten font. It is the most frustratingly awful font I have ever seen. The wonder of Shabna Meenwala's writing is despite that awful font that is as anti-reader as I have seen anything be in many, many years, did not abandon the book. <laughs> Dear publishers, please do not <laughs> do things that make it hard to read your books. Yeah, what is wrong with you? But anyway, point <laughs> is, the book is so good. All these three books are so good. I'm often very frustrated as a critic by how easy it is to hold someone's attention when you're lashing out and breaking them apart. It's very frustrating to not be able to communicate enthusiasm and love in the same way. Yeah. You know? But don't worry, I, I certainly haven't taken away your <laughs> mini rant about the font as like the major thing about this. I was just thinking about all the teenagers I know that I want to read uh, Zen with and talk about with. And I hope publishers who are listening... Readers who are listening, people who work in the books trade are listening, can hear this as a little humble plea, which is that we are in a time where it feels like the best-selling books you can put out and sell and distribute are books that make a lot of noise. But in the end, the number of people who read the books that noise is made about, I think really are far fewer than the number of people who are actually interested in books and will read them for their own sake. Also, noisy books are great. There's Books are great. But sing a song and that'll be better. And on that love letter to what books have been trying to do for us, we will sign off. You have been listening to The Lit Pickers, a podcast about books and reading, brought to you by Dipanjana and Supriya from a very rainy Bombay. The Lit Pickers is a Made in India production. Don't forget to rate and review and follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, tell everyone you know about the show. Share it on social media, tell your friends and family, scream about it on your rooftop. It really helps get the word out. Oh, and use the hashtag LitPickers. Follow Supran the Panjana on Twitter or Instagram. You can also find all of the books they've mentioned or recommended in an online resource via a link in our episode description. Thanks. Keep listening.